Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and once again, we are welcoming back our friend who sees all sides of all issues, Isaac Saul from Tangle. Isaac, welcome back. Thanks for having me on the show. Always glad to be here. I mean, your life must be fascinating right now with all of this. I feel like the news has really, for people who are in the media business, it's been uh, it's been a booming, as they say. Yeah, it's been a wild few weeks. I mean, it kind of seems like it never stops. Obviously, Trump being back on the front pages assures there's always something to write about. But, you know, it's a fascinating time for the country outside of him, too, with the Supreme Court and Biden's presidency and everything that's going on. Uh, it's hard to catch your breath these days. Yeah, it's fascinating because we're, we're now talking in August, and I find that you can break through in August in a way you can't in other months because everybody like very prominent figures in the media are on vacation. <laughs> yeah. So if you keep working through August, you know, for the young ones out there listening, if you want to break through, don't take a vacation in August because that's when everybody else takes off. Yeah, that's it. It's funny you say that because I have a vacation scheduled next there week. So now right. I'm one of the I'm, I'm opening the door to our challengers. Right. Well, I'm going to lost debates going to start a competitor. To, <laughs> I, I wouldn't count on it. It takes a lot to get me to write anything these days. But let's start with Bidenomics because I've, I've wanted to talk about this for a while because I, I'm on the White House newsletter. Uh, they're like sort of from my days of running arena, I'm on their like friends list where they send out talking points and stuff. And so I had seen starting a few months ago, these conference calls and whatnot to get people ready for Bidenomics to term. And when I saw it, I had a mixed feeling about it. I was like, this is risky to put your name when you're not a very popular president uh, to the economy, which a few months ago, was in I would say was in a much less favorable position, looking better now. But as, you know, as we'll talk about, is not a guarantee that it will continue to be in the positive trend. This is risky. This seems to be a a rather um, like a rather aggressive move by the Biden White House messaging wise. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think the politics of it are super fascinating because not only is it kind of this rejoiner to Reaganomics, which, you know, arguably the most popular Republican president of all time and immediately trying to draw comparisons there. There's also this like funny element of it where, you know, when the economy was doing really well under Trump by our traditional measures, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. Biden did a lot and Democrats did a lot of, you know, this isn't because of the Trump presidency. It's about the fact that he was handed this really mm -hmm. healthy, strong, growing economy from Obama. And that is kind of the go-to answer anytime a president is in office and the economy is great or the opposing party's presidency is in office and the economy is great is that, you know, they jump between saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to take full credit for this or, oh, actually, there isn't really anything we can do about the economy or you won't see the impacts of our policies for many years. So, Clearly, the Biden administration is making a conscious decision to pivot into this posture where they're saying the things you are experiencing right now in the economy are because of us, which, to your point, is extremely risky because if they want to own that and, you know, we have one market fluctuation or an oil reserve goes down somewhere and gas prices spike a dollar, it's I mean, Republicans are going to hammer them with Bidenomics. This is the Biden economy. This is what you're asking for. Obviously, interest rates are high right now. Inflation is coming down and things are looking better, but things still cost more than they did, you know, two years ago. So it's a little curious. I'm not sure it would be the strategy I would take. I think it's reflective of the fact that Biden recognizes his biggest weakness right now is probably the economic side of things. I mean, I think despite the fact some of the measures of the economy are good, there is a very negative sentiment among the American populace about the economy. And I think they know that, you know, if you if you take the economic stuff out of it, unemployment, wages, you know, what we're doing with trade, you remove that stuff. Biden has a lot to stand on, you know, with Trump, who might be his opponent in 2024. It's, you know, the the lack of the criminal proceedings. It's what he's done vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. It's sort of a more moderate social policy, a more moderate abortion policy, a more moderate immigration policy. I mean, I think a lot of those things he could really run on. And I think 
Trump did a really good job messaging how great the economy was under his administration until COVID hit. So that's a big challenge for for Biden if they happen to run against each other. And I think they're trying to preempt that. But I agree. I find it extremely risky to sort of say your feelings about the economy are because of me, President Biden, and thinking that that's going to help you electorally. Yeah, and I'll quote from your piece. So, just to give Biden or the economy credit, I, I, I tend to think that the president, the president's role in the economy is overstated, with certain exceptions, which we can get to. Uh, in your piece, you talked about, and you said on Thursday, so this was you know last week. So, it was, you know, recently, the Commerce Department reported that the U.S. economy grew by two point four percent annualized rate in the second quarter, beating the two percent estimate by economists, and showing the latest sign that a U.S. recession is unlikely. At the same time, the personal consumption expenditure price index increased just 2.6%, a sign that inflation is beginning to cool. Obviously, a big piece here is the unemployment rate is at 3.6% from June. Um, the non-farm payrolls have grown 1.7 million, and there's a huge body of evidence that that's being uh, grown by blue-collar jobs, which is exactly what you'd want to say as president. Uh, and he may achieve, may, emphasis on the may, the soft landing that people felt was illusory. Uh, And for that, he, I I don't want to say credit because I think credit is complicated in these situations, but for that, I think he um, will benefit at some point. There's a great Jonathan Chait piece. I don't know if you had a chance to read this piece. It was really, really awesome. Let me see if I could find this in New York Magazine where he talked about the politics of this and how long it takes voters to bake in the 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 actual economic reality. So for the, the perception to meet the reality, and he went all the way back to the 90s. He talked about 91, the 91 recession, which basically killed George H.W. Bush's reelection, even though he was in the middle of a quote-unquote successful war, which I want to emphasize those quotes. <laughs> um, the first few years of the recovery were painfully slow, uh, and he wound up, even though we were basically out of the recession by the time he ran, the voters didn't give him credit for it. Then he talks about uh, Bill Clinton's re-election and how Bill Clinton basically by hair, uh, even though the economic indicators had well been established, he by a hair was able to have the, you know get to the point where the voter perceptions met his economic reality, but it, got, it was really close. And so basically Chait's point is if you're the Biden White House, you could see what you want to see in that historical analog you could see okay the you, know, you can like voters do like give you credit for the economy um but the bad news is sometimes it takes them quite a while to to bake in that perception and the question is does biden have enough time yeah i mean look i'll, I'll even add a recent example to that which is inflation which i think we're going to see the sort of effect the dynamic that you're talking about on both ends when in prices first started going up, Democrats were sort of mocking Republicans for trying to make inflation. I mean, it feels like a distant memory now, but there was a time when Republicans were making a lot of noise about inflation early on and Democrats were essentially mocking them because wages were growing and unemployment was still low and Biden was, you know, passing all this economic relief related to COVID and people were getting, you know, their their checks. They were like, oh, we had created this big social safety net, all these things. And it was like, oh yeah, like eggs are going up 20 cents. Everybody's going to really freak out about that. I mean, that was like the joke in democratic circles. And then it was like a light switch went on where all of a sudden inflation was the number one story. Polls started showing Americans really cared about it. It took like six or seven months for that to come, which in you know the, the sort of response to this economic reality, I think is actually a pretty short period of time. And now we're in a place where inflation is still something voters really care about, but it's cooling a lot. And it's going to take a little while for, I think, voters to see consistently, you know, prices start coming down on the things that they're worried about. I personally don't think he has enough time. I don't think that economic reality is going to meet, you know, voter perception quickly enough. And I think, you know, what I wrote about in my piece is, I think there are a lot of reasons for voters to still be really skeptical of the economic realities that they're living in. I mean, as informative as unemployment rates are or wage growth is or whatever, 
it's a lot easier to be dissatisfied as a voter, I think, in today's America and in today's American economy, because there's a lot more imbalance in wages and wealth and it's really hard to buy a home and these things that sort of give people certain social status, class status, like buying a brand new car are like continuously out of reach in ways that, you know, it's like the particulars of the inflation that we're seeing, the particulars of the challenges that we're seeing, I think are really difficult on the psyche of the American voter. And so while these traditional metrics for how the economy is doing are right now pretty strong. And I think in a normal world, we'd start seeing voters grasp that, you know, in the coming months. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that sort of keeps voters negative about the economy that's different from maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, it's a classic change versus more of the same frame with some very, very interesting spins on the ball. So, if you're Biden, obviously you're you're more of the same. You want to say, "Hey, let's keep this thing going." Reagan, you know, the morning in America is the classic example. It's harder and harder to make that case. I totally agree with you because of both the the economic inequality, but also the the technological undercurrents and the constant pace of change in American society and how scary that is for people. It's hard to sell people on on that being in an environment that they want to embrace. Um, if you're Trump, you are you are the change candidate for sure and so you need to sell people on change so you have to you have to make people think uh or tap into their ex- existing feelings that the current reality is untenable i think it's gotten harder to make that case i still think there is room to make that case the challenge for trump is that he was president not long ago so he he has a tangible reality that voters are you know not going to be quick to forget. So there's going to be a little bit of selling his four years, a little bit of underselling Biden's two to three years by that point. And it's I think it's this is why it's a close race. I think Trump obviously has handed Biden so many political gifts outside of all of this. Uh, but the fact that this is not a runaway election for Biden, I think reflects that the, the sort of project of of painting Democrats as the party of inequality and painting Democrats as the party of the elite is continues to stick. I think that that message frame has been hard to shake. And if I were the Biden White House, I wouldn't I wouldn't just be talking about dollars and cents and the economic reality. I do think they have to sell the economy if it's positive and and really remind voters of that. There's no alternative. But you also need to uh, take aim at the sort of the 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 democratic elite argument and probably go on the offensive against republicans on whatever their the democrats view their vulnerability is on the inequality yeah and I, and to that end i mean one of the challenges here when we talk about bidenomics is there's no real definition for it yet yeah. i think the white house is kind of figuring that out on the fly i think yeah, Maybe quick, if, 30 seconds, give it to me if you had to. Like, yeah, had to say, I, like what is it? <laughs> I, I, would, I would say it's probably like industry investment. It's the it's build back better, it's infrastructure, it's climate change, it's creating jobs in America with government investment and in projects that are going to set us up for like yeah. a sustainable future. That's how I would sell it if I were the Biden right. White House. They say bottom I, up. They say, what do they say? Bottom up, middle out. Yeah. Bottom up, middle out. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's like, ah, I don't know. Like, I don't know how that's going to hit. Again, it's supposed to be this whole rejoinder to, to trickle down Reaganomics, whatever. And I get it, but it feels a a little too squishy for me, even as a political reporter, which means I think it's going to be very squishy for, for voters. And it's going to be feel, you know, like what, what, what do things feel like? And this is what I said. I mean, look, I'm, I'm 32. A lot of my friends are sort of young parents, just buying homes, trying to get homes, um, increasingly politically active, when I talk to people my age in America about this kind of stuff, it's I can't believe how expensive daycare is. It's like 40 grand a year to put my two year old kid in a daycare. I can't believe how expensive a home is. There's no way I could ever buy it. Or I bought this home and I had to go 10% above asking price, all cash. Yeah. And now we're moved in and it turns out it's actually a lemon. Um, 
I can't believe this cocktail at a bar costs eighteen dollars. Yeah. It's rent, like unbelievable skyrocketing rent prices in major urban areas, New York, Philadelphia, DC, Boston, LA, Chicago. That's the stuff they're worried about. So when Biden's out there just saying GDP grew by 2.4% last quarter and unemployment's 3.6%, I'm watching that going, There's this isn't going to hit for them. Yeah. Like nobody gives a shit about this basically. Well, here, 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 let me, let me workshop my, my message uh, for, for Biden. Boringly stable. That's my. That would be my message, which is like I would be like, look, like I'm not going to be the guy. I'm not Elizabeth Warren. I'm not Josh Hawley. I'm not coming in and busting heads. I'm not coming to shake things up. I couldn't if I wanted to. Congress won't pass anything I want them to right now. So, but what I can promise you is that I'm the pilot in the plane, keeping it moving in a stable direction and keeping us as safe as possible through the turbulence. The turbulence could be the banking crisis that never happened. It could be the inflationary crisis that I saw us through. It could be the post-COVID world. And in no case um, what did I have the perfect response. There are a million things I would do differently. But I got you from A to B, and you don't have to be scared about anything. Now, my opponent, now he's a drunk pilot. Now, it may be a fun <laughs> ride. He may take you to a destination that you didn't intend to go. That destination could be Monte Carlo or it could be Liberia. It's up to you. We have no idea where you're going and what it's going to look like. And so if you really hate your destination that much, uh, then go with him. But I can tell you rough and rough contours what the destination is going to be under me. And if you want to predict the life for your future of your kid and for this country, go with me. That would be my message if I were Biden. Yeah, yeah no, I think that's pretty much right on if, from, from my perspective. And, and I think that is kind of what he ran on in 2020, which is why he won and he did win, uh, despite, you know, 30% of the country thinking that he didn't. I mean, he, he won in the states that mattered and he healthily held the states that Democrats have traditionally won. And he did it by just saying, look around, you know, and at the time it was COVID was a big, you know, what this chaotic response to it. And we could have done so much better and everything's broken because this guy had the steering wheel, which in some ways was a big political gift to Biden because I'm not sure any president could have handled COVID that well. Uh, you know, there's tons of criticisms of Trump, but at the end of the day, we got the vaccine fast tracked and, um, you know, think about uh, the alternative reality. I was thinking about the other day, if if Hillary Clinton had been president during that COVID period, I was thinking about like, how would people have treated her? I think it would have been really interesting. I think she would have been really into the details of the response and all that. And I think her baggage around the company she's kept and her many years in politics would have really caught up to her. Like, I think all this sort of knocks on Moderna and the vaccine rollout and this and that, I think the conspiracizing and the expert deference and all that would have been a hundred times worse under her, both in terms of the mistakes that they would have been prone to make, but also the, you know, the kind of like, grand experiment of attaching every conspiracy to Clinton's in some cases because they've helped the conspiracizers along. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think kind of the untold story of COVID and Trump and the transition to Biden is that we had ahead of the vaccines coming out, you know, arguably one of the worst statistical responses in the sense that we had the most people die per capita or some of the most people die per capita. Um, and despite being this incredibly wealthy nation with all these resources at our disposal, we, we weren't really able to get on the same page after the first month or two of the pandemic. And early on, we had both super high numbers of deaths and also a really difficult economic toll. But in you know towards the end of the trump administration and into the biden administration i mean we really have had one of the most incredible recoveries of any country that's sort of like in our bracket or in our range in terms of you know wealth and uh the the governmental function and all those things like the oecd countries i have a theory on this by the way by the way i don't want to cut you off keep going no sorry yeah no i mean i'll be curious to hear what you think but but 
I just generally, I think that story has not been told enough. I think tr- Biden in a different world where Trump was a less adversarial opponent could tell a story about the way both of their presidencies contributed to that success. But from an economic perspective, from a health outcome perspective, all these things now, we were ahead on treatments. We were ahead on vaccines. Even though inflation here has been terrible, it's been worse in a lot of other places in terms of employment and wage growth and all these things. I mean, we're doing really, really well in the context of the global economy and other countries. I don't think that story has been told partially because it's hard to it'd be really hard to get people to feel it given how much trouble your average American has gone through. But I do think it's a true story. And there's a there's real context there that the end of the Trump administration and the passing of the legislation he passed and the things he did into what Biden did, where he picked up the baton has been actually a pretty incredible success story in terms of where our country ended up on COVID and the economy, which is, you know, it's a weird story to tell if you're either Biden or Trump, which is why neither of them are doing it. But yeah, I don't know how that hits you. Okay. But here's my theory. And there's this piece I've always thought about writing, but that I haven't written for reasons that'll become obvious. But I've, I've wanted to write this piece called Polarization is Good. Uh, and and my argument is that America tends to do really well economically because we have the most fiercely adversarial political environment where there have been many contours of what it means to be a Republican and a Democrat, but the the through line is that one side wants bigger government, one side wants smaller government. And that has been the through line from start to finish. And I think there have been some exceptions lately with this Republican defund the FBI and attack on institutions and all that kind of stuff. But even that is a form of small government um, in a way, right? So the – and I think that the COVID response – and I think what what comes out the other side of it is a – uh, a slightly more, in some cases, like pretty dramatically more free market economy, which I think tends to work in our advantage. But because 50% of our elected officials on any given year are also Democrats, there's enough energy around regulation that incredibly stupid things don't happen. Like we're not so off the deep end on the deregulatory world where we're like dumping chemicals into rivers, I hope. So it's like, so it it continues to be a country that's relatively healthy, relatively, you know, functioning properly, but there's this hodgepodge of regulation. In some cases, you know, when Democrats were ascendant, there's like a detritus of, of legislation and regulation, like in places like New York. But if you go to a place like, you can always move. We have federalism. You can go to Florida, you can go to Texas, start your business. You can incorporate in Delaware. There's just like this, this, this messy after this is just messy byproduct of our polarization, which is a little bit chaotic, but makes it really easy to start a business and keep a business going in the United States compared to anywhere else on the planet. And that's, that's my like sort of loose theory. Uh, and I think the COVID response is rough is kind of plays out along similar fault lines. I, I, I love it. I think you should write that piece. I think it's a, I think there's a lot of meat on the bone for that theory. And I think, in a really simple, like explain it like I'm five way, part of the outcome there is a lot of things happen really slowly, which gives time for people to prepare and adjust and gives time for caution and review. And the the sort of tension between the two sides because of the polarization can be really helpful in that way. And almost the reverse thing happens too, where when the two sides agree, when there's consensus, there's like this incredible momentum for things to move quickly, like we saw with the COVID response, where it's it's like if everybody is on the same page that, all right, we need to get this like small business fund up and off the ground to keep these businesses afloat and payroll afloat like we did during COVID – Congress can really do that in like a week. It's it's yeah. the system is built to be slow and and built to deal with that kind of adversarial polarization. And when there's a really strong consensus, they can move fast, which is is helpful. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I would read that. I think that's a. I think there's a lot of 
of meat there. Yeah, it's like the rejoinder to every other piece that's ever been written in the past eight years, which is yeah. that polarization is bad. The reason why I haven't written it is because I, I actually do believe that there's some very toxic polarization out there. So I, but it, like the framing of it obviously would be like the, the head, headline cat, catching, you know, sort of phrase. We had this credit rating issue. I think a lot of people are confused by it. So um, last week, uh, Fitch Credit Rating Agency downrated the U.S.'s top cre- credit rating from AAA to AA+. What does that mean? Yeah, it, depending on who you ask, I guess, this is either a really big deal or basically a total nothing burger. Um, the kind of rough outlines of the story are that there are these independent credit ratings that exist to sort of tell the world and investors across the world how reliable certain countries are in terms of investment and borrowing money from and lending money to. And Fitch is one of these three major credit rating agencies. Um, the other ones are Standard & Poor's, the S&P, and Moody's. And they, for a long time, have given us this stellar rating, which is the AAA rating. Uh, we used to have all AAA ratings until 2011 when we were downgraded, I think, by the S&P. And the downgrade then was not totally dissimilar to what happened now, which is, you know, it came on the heels of a debt ceiling standoff, which, you know, we all just went through with Republicans and Democrats negotiating over whether we were going to raise the debt limit. And the point of the rating really is, you know, it kind of works in both directions. It tells other countries about us as an economy. And when the rating is really strong, it also helps our economy. So it's kind of bi-directional, which is an interesting way to think about it, because if a country has a really good credit rating from these rating agencies, then they're going to get more investment inevitably, and they'll be able to borrow more money. So the downgrade's a little worrisome in that sense, because you know even going from AAA to AA+, plus, which is just a nudge below, is probably not going to impact our economy long term. It's kind of a warning shot across the bow, in my my opinion, which is, you know, Fitch said the reason for the rating was a deterioration of economic conditions here that they expect to come in the next three years, sort of a soft prediction of some kind of recession or a lack of growth, whatever. It's our growing debt, uh, which is increasingly something that I think, you know, these economic indicators coming from various agencies and stuff is going to become a bigger and bigger deal. And then it's the deterioration of governance that they cited, uh, which was really interesting and kind of maybe the most contentious part of the the rating change is that they they cited January 6th, the debt ceiling standoff, these things that I think are sort of associated with conservative issues like this kind of pinning it on the Republican Party is how a lot of Democrats have, I think, appropriately framed it. Um, they It was sort of a low-hanging fruit for Democrats to use it that way politically, where they've just said, we can't trust that you're going to fulfill your obligation. So it's not even necessarily a matter of, oh, do you have the money to do this? Because at the end of the day, the Treasury you know, could print money if it needed to meet its debt obligations. It would cause inflation and all this other stuff, whatever. But the idea of us defaulting seems kind of unlikely. It's more that defaulting because we can't pay the debt. It's more like, are you going to be willing to pay this debt? Yeah. And I think Fitch was sort of saying, I'm not so the rating is saying I'm not so sure, given what we've seen from your government recently. So, you know, Republicans have responded to this by saying, of course, we have this rating change. Where have you been for the last few decades? This is what happens when you spend like a drunken sailor and there's no control, yada, yada. And Democrats have said both a part a this rating change seems ill-timed. The economy is doing really well. We just got all this news about our growth. Unemployment's low. Biden is, you know, they don't like it because it makes the economy look bad. And B, the deterioration of governance is all because of Trump and Republicans and the debt ceiling standoff in January 6th. So each side is kind of getting their political talking point out of it. But uh, I do think it's, you know, it's not going to impact 
you and I's life in any like important way right now. But I think it is a signifier that there's a little less trust on the global stage in us, which I do think is concerning long term. Yeah, I think... I don't blame them, first of all, for for downgrading the rating. Like, if you look at the two fundamentals they cite, like, we got dangerously close to the brink on the debt ceiling. You and I spoke about it on this podcast, and that's unacceptable. Like, it was just unacceptable. It was avoidable. should not have happened. And two is the debt is out of control. And if it were just a ladder, like you said, it wouldn't be alone an issue, although it would ask me, it would, it would raise major questions about our overall health because of what the country would have to do in order to get out of this mess. But um, the Wall Street Journal had written um, that the, the time of the last downgrade, which was 2011, the ratio of US debt held by the public to GDP was only 65.5%, while the CBO expect it, expects it to be 98.2% this year. So in a decade, essentially, it went from 65.5% um, to GDP to 98.2%. Uh, it's also up from 79.4% before the pandemic. So this number is skyrocketing. Um, and it's getting to the point where the debt service for the U.S. is becoming the fastest growing. Pro- it is the fastest growing program in the U.S. government, if you call it a program. It, it is a big problem. And yeah. there's no political will. You pointed this out in your piece. There's no political will to do what is necessary to get our entitlement spending under control on either side of the aisle. Right. And I and I think that should be kind of the fundamental – to me, that's the fundamental takeaway is – it doesn't matter what political stripe you are or how you think we should stop spending less money or what programs should be cut or if we should just raise taxes, yada, yada, yada. It, it, there isn't some magic thing that's going to happen when we hit the 100% of GDP, but that's coming. And you know, based on pretty reasonable estimates, I think in the next 20 or 30 years, our biggest expense will be servicing this debt, paying this interest on the debt. Which is totally insane. I mean, you, you whether you are a you know dyed in the wool Republican who wants the biggest, baddest military in the world, and you think that's the only national priority, or you are a traditional Democrat who wants to put a lot of money into you know social security and unemployment insurance and food stamps, whatever. Every dollar that we have to put towards servicing the debt is a dollar that we can't put towards these public goods. And that's going to happen quick. And there doesn't seem to be anybody, any any real leader on, on either side who wants to fall on the sword because the two most obvious things to do are to you know reform social security which is a third rail in politics or it's to find ways to save money on the military either by cutting spending or addressing the incredible waste that we have you know there's a few different directions to go but those are political losers and nobody's interested in losing in politics right now so to me it's a pretty scary situation to be in i know a lot of people in congress aren't going to have to deal with it because they're 60 or 70 years old and they'll be long gone by the time it's it's a big issue, but it's going to be a big issue. And, you know, I, I don't see any way out of it without a lot of people doing things that they don't really like, which, you know, involves cutting programs that are popular or reducing military spending at a time when the world seems like it's a, a threatening place in every direction. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but that's my big takeaway is that Fitch is saying, you know, there's on top of all the political partisanship we all see and witness every day, it's we are entering a class of country that is just holding way too much debt compared to how much revenue we raise and what our GDP is for us to be sort of enjoying this triple A ranking. Yeah. And and I like I actually think like the kinds of changes we would need to make are not that disruptive, like raising the retirement age, uh, for instance, and doing it like giving us some time so that current retirees who are, you know, depending on it aren't affected. So you don't have to worry about those politics or whatever. You just do it. Give yourself some time. Like if we, we've done segments on this before. Like historically, when Social Security was first passed, people were basically dying on average before they would even collect their checks. Now they're living decades after they're collecting their checks. So obviously things have changed. Um, we've all been around enough retirees to know that they've got plenty of good years left in them. Some, plenty of them choose to work after that. There's so many things you could do there. Um, there's so 
so many fiscal reforms you can make to Social Security and Medicare, uh, especially Social Security. And then the Pentagon, like, I think there is a bipartisan consensus somewhere that there's a lot of waste in the Pentagon. Like, you know, how many aircraft carriers do we need? What's our procurement processes? How many contractors do we need? What are all these people doing? Like, do we need more than the next 20 countries combined in sort of military uh, equipment and spending? Or would it just be enough for us to have more than the next five? Like, you know, like, and, and how much of this stuff even matters in a world where it's cyber warfare is... I sound like an old man cyber, but like, you know, the sort of non, you know, traditional uh, warfare is taking more precedence. And what are we even doing on that front? Does anybody even know? Like, I feel like there's a lot that could be done, but there's just no political will for either of those things. Yeah, which is bizarre to me, I would say, about the military. I mean, I, I understand the social security side of it. Because no matter what, I mean, if you're 60 and you find out that we're changing it to, you know, bumping the age from 67 to 70, your retirement maybe just got extended three years and that sucks. And I get that. And there, no matter when we do it, there's going to be a group of people who get screwed over contextually compared to everyone else, which is a difficult bill to swallow. Those people are popular voters um, or, or regular voters. And so, you know, being popular with them matters a lot for politicians. At least, but just on that before you move on, at least let's just do it for us. I'm 40. Do it for me now. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Now. We don't think nobody I know who's 40 years old is going to get that up in arms at a three year change right now. They don't, people don't think like that. Uh, there's probably some set of people who do. But by and large, they don't. Just do yeah. it for us now. Set us up. I totally agree. You could you could do it for everybody born after you know 1983 or whatever. Um, and I don't think it would be a super unpopular position. The military thing is interesting because I have interviewed and spoken to off the record such a wide range of people who recognize this problem. Like I, I have a few buddies who have done tours in Iraq and Afghanistan who. Literally, we'll talk about how absurd it was, like their their footprint there and some of the waste that they experienced in like a day to day, you know, forgetting like a $450 helmet in some restaurant or something and then going back to the base and just being like, oh, there's like 10 more I could choose from. I'm just going to leave it there or whatever. All the way up to the contractors who are beefing up the amount of money they want with zero pushback, never getting pushback for these projects or, you know, whatever contracts they're selling for weapons procurement or building military bases or whatever. And it's just like, just name the dollar and we're going to rubber stamp it because it's, you know, we're building something, it's military, it's safety, it's national security. And it's, it doesn't matter who you talk to in that process. Everybody is willing to acknowledge at some point that like, we're just throwing money around like crazy. And then you have the sort of the tangible audit side of it, which is like any time any you know, fraction of the Pentagon is allowed to get audited because they do a really good job of pre- preventing these kinds of audits from happening in a really thorough, regular way. It's always like so damning. It's hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. on this one project went to waste. So I feel like that's something we could reasonably do and there could be political momentum behind it if it was sold the right way. I just think one of the really dogmatic things in our country is like we don't touch the military, we don't cut military funding, whatever. And it's hard to get out of that framing because, you know, people want to feel safe. And I get that. I mean, I understand that instinct. I think like it is a fundamental purpose of the government to protect its citizens and to protect our country from, you know, outside threats. I think that we are doing a very, very good job of that based on, you know, the amount of funding that's like 7x, whatever the next 10 countries combined now or whatever it is. I mean, it's so absurd. So I think we could pair that back a little bit at the very least, or we could just do a better job of not wasting money. And and that's something that we could sell a lot of Americans on. I can't let you go before I ask you about this this Trump indictment. And for people listening, we are recording this on August 8th, even though it's uh, going to be dropping a week later. So if there's anything that happens in this case, forgive us. But 
What uh, what do you make of these charges? Uh, we I think we talked about the you and I were recording just as the last <laughs> yeah. indictment hit, which is the the first indictment in the documents case. Obviously, there was a superseding indictment there that was more damning to Trump, and then there was this January sixth slash um, election, um, you know fraud case uh, electoral fraud case yeah so the first of all i mean i think politically this could be one of the more damning indictments there is because you know i i I think it's reflective of the actions Trump took to stay in office. I think Democrats very successfully ran on a sort of preserved democracy platform in 2020 and 2022. And so I think this messaging about the indictment, this indictment is going to be really powerful for a lot of Democratic voters and for a lot of independent voters. I I don't know that it moves the needle much on the right because it's not a ton of new information, but it sort of solidifies and put into a legal context some of what Trump did. Uh, the actual charges, conspiracy to fraud the U.S., conspiracy to obstruct an official government proceeding, which was the tallying of the Electoral College vote, conspiracy against the right of voters to have their votes properly counted, and then uh, the obstructing and att- attempting to obstruct an official proceeding charge. I mean, they to me, I think this is like, you know, I'm stepping a little bit out on a political branch here, but this is, from my perspective, like the most damning and condemnable part of the Trump administration and and what Trump did as a as a president. I because of the nature of my work, I've written a lot of really positive things about Trump. I've written a lot of really negative things about him. I think what he did after he lost the election is is the worst of what he did when he was in office. And the indictment puts it in really clear terms. I mean, it basically says, again, these are allegations, but usually the Justice Department is doing this stuff with a good deal of supporting evidence. It it says that he was told repeatedly by high-ranking people and trusted advisors that he had lost the election. He took those challenges to court. He had a right to challenge the results of the election. He had a right to say the election was stolen. You know, he, he could say these things publicly and try and influence people. What he didn't have a right to do was try and create a fake slate of electors to send to Congress, try and browbeat, you know, state election officials into finding votes for him. He didn't have a right to to make claims that had been falsifiable, that were falsifiable in court and bring them to the public, all this stuff. So they I thought they did a good job of drawing the line between, you know, what was kind of his political speech and and acceptable and what were his actions that amounted to sort of this fraud conspiracy. The issue with the indictment, which you'll see if you read any conservative commentary about it, is that it is taking well-known and used statutes that are pretty broad and trying to fit political conduct into them that we've never really fit into them. And, you know, I think the I forgot who wrote it, but some somebody said something kind of funny and cheeky, but also, you know, grounding, which was like. Yes, this is unprecedented in a way, just like it was unprecedented for a former president to try and change the results of an election after they happened. I mean, that's why the charges are unprecedented, because we've yeah. never had to deal with these actions before. So um, I I think yeah. there is some legitimate – I mean, I'd be curious what, what you think. Again, you have a, a stronger legal background than I do, but it seems like from my read, there are legitimate questions about how – the courts are going to narrow the focus of this prosecution or the charges and what parts of Trump's actions he'll be able to excuse on First Amendment grounds or just the fact that he genuinely believed that the election was stolen and therefore every action he took after that was lawful versus what's like really rock solid. This was defrauding the people, obstructing a government, you know, in the end, I think he's deeply screwed. I mean, I I will say, like, I'm not somebody who ever thought that Trump was going to end up in jail or facing prison time or really serious. I, I didn't think that before January 6th and the immediate aftermath. I thought it was going to be handled with impeachment politically. I think that this ups the odds that he's like pleading out of all of these charges he's facing. I think they have him dead to rights on the Mar-a-Lago classified documents. I think this story is a little bit 
more of a coin flip, but um, I think it's, yeah, yeah, it increases the odds that he's going to have to plead out, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, there's a lot here. I think like one is you and I, we spoke about this sort of the posture of the case. And I think although the documents case is way more clean cut, the judge and the potential jury <clears throat> are not as favorable to him there as they are. Uh, we're, we're more favorable to, to him there than they are here where you have a judge who's by all accounts going to be um, more skeptical of him and uh, and has been very hard on January 6th plaintiffs. And then you also have a DC jury. So I think if you combine, and I think that is more important than unfortunately than the charges themselves. Uh, I do think that this is the most important case. Uh, and like you, um, my judgment of Trump uh, is like I rank number one his conduct in and around the election as the worst thing he ever did, and I think that this is a this is a tricky case for the government. Although I do think the arguments that are being made on his behalf in the public square are overstated largely. The First Amendment one being one of them where you, Bill Barr, among many others, knocked it down saying, yeah, you have you have a First Amendment right, but you don't have a First Amendment right to engage in a conspiracy. If I am John Gotti directing Sammy the Bull Gravano to commit a murder, that is speech, but it's also uh, a conspiracy to commit murder. In this case, if you're Trump and you're directing people around you to find fake electors, et cetera, and you're calling up Rafsenberger and telling him to get a specific number of votes, that's speech, but it's more than speech. It's it's The speech is being used to carry out a crime. Uh, I think second is this really, really strange and I guess in some ways predictable argument that he thought he won, which let's pretend for a second – that that is a defense to this legally, well, then shouldn't that be damning politically that this guy thought he won an election that was very clearly not won? Like, shouldn't that make everybody very skeptical of this guy's state of mind that he thought he won this election? And isn't that freaking dangerous? But the the more important part of this is you can think whatever you want about what you want. And yes, like in certain crimes, specific intent matters, but there are subcrimes to this, right? And those subcrimes are the different elements of fraud that he committed in the fake electors and the fraudulent electors and, you know, the pressure on Pence and all this, where he was pressuring people and, or allegedly pressuring people and allegedly directing a conspiracy to break individual laws along the way. And so if you thought, like if I thought, for instance, that Somebody broke into my apartment and stole my laptop and the police didn't do enough or whatever. And then I broke into their apartment to try to steal my laptop back. I'm still getting arrested. You know what I'm saying? Like I could believe whatever that they stole my laptop. And by the way, it would be particularly bad if I broke into their apartment and the laptop wasn't there, (laughs) which is the case here. But like in this case, like I would go to jail, right? Like what you believe, it matters only so much. And in this case, it Trump, uh, I, I think he knew he lost, but it doesn't. He, we don't like like the prosecutor doesn't need to prove that. In my opinion, yeah, no, I think that basically tracks with my understanding of this. It seems like the the defenses that they've kind of floated publicly are much more political than they are kind of legally sound. Like I, I think. They want this in the public's eye to be a free speech case where it's like Trump was just saying what he believed and he's allowed to say that. And this is just more of the left trying to shut him up and keep him out of the 2024 race. And I think that politically is a totally fine strategy and is probably going to work for the 35 percent of voters who are, you know, Trump diehard still and, and aren't moving on this. Like you, I think the judge and jury here is going to be very skeptical of that argument. And I think it's part of the reason why I feel like he's going to be backed into a corner here legally in a way that forces him to kind of plead out. I don't know what that looks like, obviously, but I just don't see – I mean, there's just so much that we know, even as news consumers and journalists and whatever. There's so much in the public record already about what he did, whether it's like the audio tapes from Georgia or the fake slate of electors from these seven states 
or the instructions he gave to Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and all the things they said publicly and the fundraising emails off of the idea the election was stolen. And, you know, they took some things to court. So they filed some of these arguments in court and they got shot down. I mean, there's there's such a long public record trail of what they tried to do that it's to me, you know, that's what I have in my possession as just a news consumer and a journalist. I can't imagine what the DOJ has after interviewing all these people privately and going through the process of investigating this for two and a half years. And I feel like if they can make the the legal framework function, which again, it seems like they are fitting this conduct into some broader statutes that are used for a lot of different kinds of conduct. And I understand that like anytime a new, you know, a, a new use case comes up like this, it's, there's always some ambiguity about how it's going to work. But conceptually to me, it seems like they have what they need in order to really nail him for this. And, and I imagine they're probably going to. So, um, yeah, his best defense, his best strategy is to win the election. Yeah, uh, before that's and that obviously puts us in a very perilous place as a country. But the the timing, it, it, honestly, I, I although I think these cases are very damning, I think ultimately it's going to be the American people who make their judgment on him because uh, the chances of all of this stuff wrapping up uh, in time for this election are uncertain to say the least. Like it, it, it seems like it could be a photo finish on some of these and then there's appeals and all sorts of other stuff. And there's the major question of, well, what if he's convicted in the middle of the summer or the fall uh, leading up to election? What if the jury's deliberating in the middle of the election as people are casting votes? What happens if he's acquitted on one? And then, not, you know, it's like, there's just so many different things. What happens if he's elected mid appeal what you know there's just like there's a million different scenarios that are horrific honestly um it's it's a lot to think about yeah i and all of this is without having the fulton county indictment which is almost certainly going to come you know in the next month or two it's trickier because it doesn't you can't he can't pardon himself yeah that brings in this whole other layer of law enforcement that you know we don't really know how that's gonna i mean there's it's hard to conceive really how that goes or how it could play out if you were an elected official who was facing these really serious state charges. So this gets back to my Biden message though. Boring. What did I say? Boringly something was my message for him. It's like, if I'm Biden, I'm kind of messaging the people be like, look, you, you may not love everything about me, but I don't come with any of this. Like, like he, it would basically be an appeal to that suburban family Who's who? Who feels okay about how things are going? Just being like, look, do you want to go through four years of that, or do you want to like go with this guy who may be old? It may be weekend at Bernie's over there, but it's like it's a predictable environment. That would be my message if I were the Biden. Yeah, team, no, I think know? it's smart. It's the yeah, the boring stability of of Joe Biden. Um, you know, and that and they're going to try and upend that. I mean, the Republicans want these investigations in Hunter Biden and the Biden family and this stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe some of that stuff gets traction. But I think Trump has given way too much material to prosecutors in a really legitimate fashion and then politically to Democrats, where I just think the next year or so is going to be totally bonkers for him. Yeah. All right. Well, Isaac, always a pleasure, my friend. Uh, everybody listening, go out there and read read Tangle, right? That's where yeah, our website says. Readtangle.com. All right. Well, enjoy your vacation wherever you're going. Everybody who's listening, thank you for listening. And make sure to get out there, rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, we will be back in a couple of days, uh, same time, same place. Thank you, everybody.